0: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content.
1: Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Coming up on today's show.
0: Oftentimes people who are selling something, they start by saying, look, we have the greatest thing ever to fit your needs. What do you need again? It just totally lacks any any integrity.
2: The programs that we offer, they're incredibly highly simulated experiences. For example, at the boutique, you get a credit card. It's a Martha's Table credit card with an apple where like your chip would be and you shop.
1: Hey, thanks for being with us today. Our first guest is Ian Altman. Ian is a commentator, coach, and writer on the challenge of selling with integrity and empathy. Our second guest is Kim Ford. Kim is the leader of Martha's Table, one of our region's leading not-for-profits. Martha's Table is doing some very important things in our community, but one of the things that's most important is how they discovered ways to help their clients and empower them at the same time very interesting important concept looking forward to discussing that so that's what we got for you today so do you believe there's a right way to do things do you believe that the outcome is all that matters our next guest is a nationally recognized expert in sales communications and he definitely has a view he believes that integrity is not just something to use as a marketing slogan but should be the core of successful successful connections and influence Ian Altman has built many businesses and scaled them from zero to billions in revenue, and now he shares his experiences through books, articles, a podcast, Same Side Selling, and now he's in our studio today to share some of what he's learned and why integrity does in fact matter in business and in life. Ian, thanks for joining us. Jonathan, thanks for having me here. Integrity is core to your approach to sales and business growth. What exactly do you mean by integrity?
0: Well, the funny part is in our book, Same Side Selling, I co-wrote with a guy named Jack Quarles. Most people can guess by his last name, Quarles, that Jack spent two decades in purchasing and procurement. And so oftentimes we see buyers and sellers at odds with one another. And the reality is that if we're all looking to achieve the same end goal for the client, then we avoid that adversarial trap that pits one side against the other. So with integrity, it means that we're as committed to the outcome for our clients as they are. We're not just focused on making the sale. Is integrity honesty? Um, well, let's hope so. But okay. ultimately, it's making sure that not only you're being honest, but part of it is evaluating, can I deliver what these people need? So, for example, you wouldn't go to a doctor who who says to you, oh, yeah, well, gee, I'm going to do this procedure. And in their mind, they're thinking, well, it's probably not going to help, but I'm
1: going to make money from it. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing in business. Interesting. So you're using integrity as, as a screen for what my granddad used to always say, just do the right thing.
0: Novel concept. So, so the idea is this, is that I've done research with over 10,000 executives on how they make and approve decisions. And so across that, what people ask is anytime they're looking to make a decision to buy something or spend money, the, there are three questions that they ask. They ask, what problem does this solve? Why do I need it? And what's the likely outcome? And if we know that, then what happens is when people are trying to sell something and you're not focused on the result or outcome, the client starts thinking to themselves, wait a minute, you don't even know what we're trying to achieve, yet you're telling me we should buy this thing from you. That sounds like, there's a technical term, it sounds like BS. And so we want to make sure that we're a little bit more clear about that. We don't fall into what I call axis displacement disorder. It's a condition you may have heard of. That's when the seller believes that the axis of the earth has
1: shifted, and now the world revolves around them. <laughs> I hate to tell you, I don't see that just people trying to sell things. <laughs> you know, it strikes me that when people talk about the need for integrity or the need to do the right thing, it runs counter against the, the perception that, I must maximize profit and I must close every sale. How do you counsel people to, frankly, be brave enough to walk away from something in order to get something better later? Well, it it does on its
0: surface sound counterintuitive, but anybody in business and anybody who's selling anything to anybody knows that the client who's not a good fit, the client who you can't actually deliver the right results for, ends up being the bane of your existence and you get sucked into the vortex of evil. So if instead, if what we can do is look and say, okay, is this someone who has a problem that I'm really good at solving, and can I deliver the results that they need? And if that's the case, we're probably going to have pretty good success together, which will lead to repeat and referral business. Almost anybody involved in any type of business has at one point said, oh, wow, I really need the revenue, so I'm going to sell this thing that maybe we shouldn't be selling, and – Inevitably, they regret it, but at the time, it seems like a good idea. So that's what we have to avoid. That's what we have to avoid because if we don't do that, that's when we fall into these terrible traps.
1: How did you come to this worldview? Did it hit you one night like a lightning bolt, or where did this come from? Well, I think in in running my businesses in the past, we would look at those
0: clients who. We had that kind of spidey sense that said, maybe this isn't the right fit. And you're thinking, oh, but it's a big client, so we're going to we're gonna keep working on this. And then all of a sudden, they weren't happy. Your team wasn't happy. Everybody was butting heads and became adversarial. And looking at that, I said, man, you need to have enough discipline to not get into those traps that aren't a good fit. Then in running Same Side Selling, it was interesting. The way Jack Quarles, my co-author, and I met – was Jack actually attended a training program I was doing because he wanted to find out, gee, what's the enemy teaching the other people? And he said, wait a minute, Ian's teaching that you should be focused on the results with the client. And then we had this conversation. He said, you know, I don't think there's ever been a book written on sales from the buyer and seller's perspective. And we did that, and now we have the second edition, and it's been obviously wildly successful.
1: How important is uh, is empathy and doing homework about your client necessary to – practice this type of approach.
0: Well Jonathan, it's it's absolutely essential. If you don't have empathy around what they're trying to achieve, if you're not listening to them, then you're probably suffering from that axis displacement disorder and you're just focused on yourself. So what we have to do is pivot that and one of the best ways to do that is when you're meeting with somebody, a potential client, Oftentimes, people who are selling something, they start by saying, look, we have the greatest thing ever to fit your needs. What do you need again? And it, right. just, it just totally lacks any any integrity. Instead, what you want to think about is, okay, has this person, my potential client, convinced me that they have a problem that's worth solving that I feel we're really good at addressing? And if so, we have something to talk about. And if not, not so much. And what I find with my clients is that less than half of the potential clients that they meet with are actually a good fit for what they do. So if you know that, your goal is to find that out as quickly as possible.
1: How much does this overlap with this current trend in in society, politics and so forth, where people say they're craving authenticity? Well, you know what, I think there's a lot to it because what happens
0: is our brains are acutely aware of stuff that just doesn't make sense. So when somebody is purely advocating one side of an argument, We think to ourselves well the world isn't that black and white you can't just take that one position so in the world of politics when somebody says oh those people are absolutely insane and you can pick whichever side you're on you will you will be convinced that the other people are crazy instead we have to do is think to ourselves why does someone feel differently than i do what's the common ground that we can find together and part of it is disarming the notion that you're just there to sell something see it's just like if you walk into a store and the hyper ambitious salesperson walks up to you and says, "May I help you?" What's our default response? No. No thanks, just looking. Why is that? Is it because we prefer to go rummaging through the store by ourselves? No. It's because we don't trust their intentions. So one of the principles we teach is this notion of disarming. So when you meet somebody, the first thing is, look, I don't know if this is for you. I don't know. If the, I don't know if we have the right fit, but I'm happy to learn more to see if we might be able to help. That conveys that notion that you just described as empathy. And now we're trying to figure out, do we have a fit together versus can I ram this thing down your throat? Maybe if I speak long enough, you'll slip into
1: a coma and then you'll sign something. Not a good long-term strategy. You've been a principal. You've been a CEO. You've grown businesses. Now you're advising people, entrepreneurs, you know, like my my crazy old granddad. What makes someone suited to be a counselor, advisor, vis-a-vis CEO? How do you make the change?
0: Well, it was interesting. So, in my prior business, we—I we, I started it from zero, grew the business to a pretty good size, and then had an investment banking firm out of New York that acquired my company for cash and stock, and said, "Hey, will you will you serve as managing director?" We grew the value of that business from 100 million to two billion in less than three years. And candidly, I burned out, and I thought, "What am I going to do now?" And I was talking to some friends. I said, "I don't want to build the exact same business again." And they said, "Well, why don't you help other people?" On how they can grow their companies. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you always seem to enjoy helping our businesses more than your own. If we called you up and said, hey, we're struggling, you would abandon your business and help us. And I said to them, what do you mean? Because I didn't realize there were people who did that. And now I have the good fortune of I travel around the world and I I, I speak to audiences on really fundamental principles on how they can introduce integrity into their sales process and actually shorten sales cycles, shift the focus from price to value, and get on the same side with their customers. It's kind of a novel concept.
1: People do tell me, and I do agree, it's much harder to be a coach. How do you react when somebody's just doing something that is just so mind-numbingly dumb you just want to grab them by the neck?
0: Well, and, and so the thing is this, is that it's it's just like anywhere else in life. We might see our clients doing something that we think is really dumb. right? We might see a CEO doing something that we think is dumb. And what we have to ask ourselves is, why are they doing that? What's motivating that that makes them believe that that's the right choice? Because rest assured, they're not thinking to themselves, you know what? I'm, I'm looking to do something really stupid. Here's an idea. And then they do that. Instead, they think it's a good idea. It's just like the person who sells somebody something that they don't need. And they say, oh, this is great. I got short-term revenue. Next thing you know, the reputation's in the mud. If we think about your the story of your grandfather in the clothing business, here's the thing. Back then – if you didn't deliver great results for somebody, they might have told one of their neighbors or friends. Today, if
1: you deliver something that doesn't work for the client,
0: they'll tell millions of people they've never even met.
1: So you're here in D.C., the center of spin and networking and all the rest of it. How how do you uh, spread a message like yours, and how do you think it fits with uh, a lot of networking I see around here is anything but integrity. In integrity-driven.
0: Well, I, I think one of the flaws a lot of people have with networking is it gets back to that notion of just focusing on your, on themselves instead of asking people, like for starters, what's interesting about them? What are they doing? And also describing the problems that you solve rather than what it is that you do. So most people in a networking event, someone says, what do you do? And the person says, oh, I'm an attorney. Oh, I'm a government contractor. Right? And it's just something that means nothing. Right. But instead, you can describe the problems that you solve. So when someone comes to me, and they say, what do you do? I don't say, oh, I'm a keynote speaker. I, you know, I, I come in and develop sales organizations. I say, well, my clients come to me usually when their sales cycles take too long, when their clients focus on price instead of value, when their message falls on deaf ears. Those are the types of problems I solve. And then the people who have that need instantly pick up on it. The people who don't have that need, well, I can be genuinely interested in what goes on in their world.
1: I would say the biggest problem you solve is people being insecure about their product and selling off strength. Well,
0: there could be that, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ian, it was great having you on today. You have a lot more to say than I can give you time for. Don't forget to check out his book, Same Side Selling. Ian Allman, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jonathan. to acuity acuity is a leading technology innovator solving big data analytics problems check them out today and discover the power of acuity it seems such a straightforward proposition Every child should have an opportunity to thrive and achieve their greatest success in life. But for many, it's not that easy or is success assured. There are many in our region who use their entrepreneurial energy to address these challenges, and for many of them, our next guest, Kim Ford, is a leader they look to. Kim is the president and CEO of Martha's Table. How it is growing in its activities and how she came to be president and CEO of one of our region's most respected social ventures. Kim, thanks for joining us today.
2: Yeah, I'm so happy to be here, thanks for having me. Tell me about Martha's Table, what does it do? Well, you know, Martha's Table is one of the greatest nonprofits in this country. Uh, We are so excited to be celebrating our 40th year this year. So we have been around for 40 years and in those 40 years we have evolved. Uh, A lot of people may have known us when we started a long time ago as a soup kitchen and we've evolved from that into a free food truck, our McKenna's Wagon that goes out 365 days a year. This year 366 days since we're in a leap year. Uh, Some folks may remember us as a food pantry, but we have evolved from that into healthy markets. We have two lobby markets at both of our educational campuses and 53 pop-up markets, our joyful markets, in every elementary school in Ward 7 and 8. We evolved from a thrift shop. Many people remember the thrift shop on 14th Street. We've evolved into our Outfitters Boutique on MLK Avenue in the Southeast where people can shop at no cost in a very nice setting for children's clothes and adult workforce attire. And we've also evolved from a daycare with just primarily custodial care into nationally accredited early childhood education centers where we just won Head Start, Early Head Start, doubled the number of families we can serve. And now we have over 200 young people, six weeks to age four. So these past 40 years have really been about evolution, about growing and uh, about, you know, Martha's Table and who we were and who we are now and who we're going to continue to, to look to be in these next 40 years
1: it's underappreciated how much entrepreneurship occurs in our region. We don't talk about it enough from the standpoint of commercial, but frankly, the larger entrepreneurial activity in our region is around what you're doing, social venturing. I see more entrepreneurial activity around solving social problems in this region than just about any place I've ever lived. What do you think it is about this region that makes somebody like you who's got an entrepreneurial mentality or the people around you, why do we see so much of it here?
2: when you think about DC and I'm a proud native washingtonian we recognize that we have all of the resources to get things done we had when i talk about resources not just financial but you know the mental uh resources we have all of the industries in the world we have so much diversity and so i believe that you know we truly know that if we can't do it here in dc we can't do it anywhere and i think that that really helps spur that entrepreneurial spirit that we can really get this done and let's come at it from a number of different approaches and let's pull on our resources and our networks and so i think that that's probably why you see it's so strong here in this region
1: you know it's funny i've never thought about it until you started to talk at this moment it's put up or shut up you know it's it's like <clears throat> here in this region. It, literally as you say there are all these resources so much wealth we got the we got the government money we have got private money we've got all these amazing existential and social problems it's literally put up or shut up
2: absolutely and then think about the size of the region you know i talk about especially in dc I mean, we're talking about 700,000 people You know, and when you think about the number of people who need some additional support, who need organizations like Martha's Table to stand alongside them, I mean, we're talking about a couple hundred thousand. And again, if you can't do that here in D.C. with everything that we have, all of these available resources, then what's our shot in Houston or L.A. or Chicago, right? Mm
1: -hmm. We talk a lot in D.C. in particular the frustration of being proximate to the federal government but not being a state, sort of being uh, the, the playground of government but not really being part of it. If we saw the problem here, does it make it easier for Congress or for the administration, whoever they are, to see that solutions are, are achievable because we do it here? Does that drive people more here, do you
2: think? Well, I don't know. Um, but I do think that we have a unique opportunity actually not having our full rights. I mean, obviously, I, I, I like – I believe – Most, if not all, Washingtonians wish we had the full representation that we so deserve. Mm. But I also think we can kind of flip that and say, because we're unique and different, at least in this point in time, how can we then leverage and use the federal government to benefit us. I think a lot of times we talk about how the federal government uses us as a pilot a a lot of times um, and we think of that in a negative way but we've actually had some pilots that have been truly beneficial. Like if you think about one uh, one of the programs that's touted often, D.C. TAG, that was actually a pilot and it's a pilot program that you could only do in D.C. because every other state wanted it. Hmm. So when you think about solutions or proposed solutions that states really want to try out, and I talked about this a lot in a, in a previous life, you know, as a tuition, people want to try to figure out how to eliminate student debt. And you can't pilot that in Wisconsin because Colorado wants it, because Michigan wants it. But here we can actually, in some cases, use our unique status to benefit us.
1: What do you think it is about how Martha's Table is going about its operations that really has been a template for other developing organizations here in the region.
2: What's so important for us is that we listen first and react. I think there may be organizations out there who think that they have the solutions and who think that they uh, have the answers. And we don't believe that. We know that the communities whom we support they know exactly what they want, they know exactly what they need, and they know exactly how to get it. They're looking for organizations to partner with them, to bring in resources, uh, to help advocate. And that's how, how we see ourselves. And so as I talked earlier about these various evolutions, We didn't read that in a policy manual. We didn't go to a workshop and decide that's what we wanted to do. The the communities told us that. The communities were the ones who were saying, this is not what we want this is not how we want services delivered Uh, and so you know what's core for us is treating everyone with dignity and respect uh the the programs that we offer they're incredibly highly simulated experiences Uh, so for example at the boutique you get a credit card it's a martha's table credit card with an apple where like your chip would be and you shop You shop in a boutique that was designed by someone who designs boutiques in Georgetown. It's a very nice place. You shop, you check out, they swipe the credit card, uh, the the retail associate bags you up. Same thing in our lobby markets. You get a basket. There's choice involved. You get to pick which items you want. Uh, And again, that's all community driven people. If you want to shop at a market, regardless of whether the market has a cost or not, you should have a market experience. Same thing with if you're going to a boutique, it doesn't matter if it's at no cost, you should have a boutique experience. And so I think that that's a, a part of what makes us and other nonprofits like us stand out is that, again, that core belief in the in the people we support. And a lot of times we talk about standing alongside the community, but really we're standing a little bit to the back. They're the ones leading everything that we do. I don't know if you've ever been to our new headquarters in southeast D.C., 57,000 square feet of the most beautiful space you've ever seen in life. It's all glass. I'm on a great hill. Uh, it's beautiful. But but we sent advanced teams out and asked the community, what do you want to see before we broke ground, before we broke ground? And I still see people today out in the community say, you know, I helped you build that building because we listened to what they wanted, and that's exactly what we designed and that's what we built. And, again, I think that's a part of what makes us unique is, again, this true belief in people and and our our, our core belief in dignity and respect and the fact that we know that we are there to support uh, and not to swoop in.
1: This is a lesson that everybody in business, whether it's for-profit or social, should understand, which is if you treat people with dignity and respect and you don't talk down to them, In fact, you service them by giving them the power to give back to you. That creates a successful enterprise. It sounds to me like that's exactly what you're doing.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and and so many things just, you know, I I talk a lot about dignity and respect as do all of our 125 amazing team members at Martha's Table, 1MT. Um, You know, there's so many things, small, medium, and large, that come from simply treating people with dignity and respect. And it starts with listening, just listening to folks. So in our in our hub, which is our big lobby at our southeast headquarters, just sitting with community members and listening to them. One thing that happened, you know, one day there was a there was a seasoned citizen who was sitting there. She, she looked a little upset. We talked to her. Long story short, where uh, they were having their fitness class their space uh, was taken away from them. So they didn't have space to have their fitness class anymore. And we said, well, you can have your fitness class here. We have an entire wing of partner rooms. And as long as you're a member of the community or your organization, is a community organization or your meeting or event is open to the community at no cost, We'll let you use our space. So now every Tuesday and Thursday, our seasoned citizens are there in their fit and wellness class. And I'm, let me tell you, I can't hang with them. It is an intense class. Awesome. But that came all from one conversation in the lobby market. And, again, that's that's how we, uh, we believe we are in Martha's Table is first listen and then support as we can.
1: Listens for everybody. Really quick before I let you go, this is a big year for Martha's Table. What are some of the things you're going to be doing this year?
2: 40. 40 strong. Um, This year we're going to be doing a lot. We are uh, bringing back our conversations series. So we'll be having two big conversations, one in the spring, one in the fall, uh, about important issues that are going on in in D.C. We'll be having our uh, our 40th annual, our benefit to celebrate our 40th annual. Uh, We're very excited about that. Father's Day cookout, we have our community harvest dinner. Last year, we supported over 2,000 people. So we've got a lot going on at Martha's Table.
1: And I'd love to have you in What's working in Washington, Kim Ford. It was great to have you today.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much.
3: And now, What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. When I first heard about the Wuhan coronavirus, like everyone else, I was scared. But after talking to some expert friends of mine, I'm now confident that we'll be able to take on this challenge, and here's why. The first question I had is, how does America prevent infectious diseases from coming to our shores, and what are we doing now to face this latest disease? As it turns out, the fight against infectious diseases isn't a new one. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control, were founded in the mid-1940s, just after the Second World War. Its primary focus then was to reduce and then to eliminate the spread of malarial diseases in the United States. In fact, the CDC is centered out of Atlanta because at the time, most malaria was spread in the South. But the CDC has grown into far more than just an anti-malarial organization. It's a small army now, numbering at about 15,000 epidemiologists, otherwise known as disease detectives. They're now stationed in more than 50 countries around the world, conducting a slew of different missions. Some of these disease detectives collect animals from distant jungles to define which ones contain the root for infectious diseases. Others provide consultative services for the third-world countries, training and enabling their staff to identify and prevent the spread of disease. Here in the United States, members of the CDC are stationed in every state, preparing our more than 5,000 hospitals to deal with the potential of an outbreak. But one of the major factors that allows the CDC to so accurately predict the spread of disease are their data models. The advanced mathematical models incorporate various data sources and advanced computational techniques they're able to portray real world disease transmission. The data models translate basic data science about infectious diseases into decision support tools for public health. Fortunately, we already have the supporting models for this outbreak. Our fight against Wuhan Corona isn't a new one. In fact, Corona itself isn't a disease, but rather a category of viruses. Other viruses in this same family that you might be familiar with are SARS and MERS. Because we know how to fight SARS and MERS, we're in a great position to defeat Wuhan Corona. The experts at the CDC are using the latest data models and epidemiological practices to prepare our nation here and abroad to fight Corona. With the continued work of the CDC and with a bit of luck, next time somebody says Corona, the only thing you'll think is, where the limes. That was What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco.
1: Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, the Sunbathers and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout out to Marymount University's School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at Marymount.edu. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC? I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.